tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we talked to Senator Maisie Hirono. She sits on the Armed Services Committee, and she toured the Red Hill Fuel Facility yesterday and met with small business owners at the Naval Exchange who have been affected by fuel-contaminated water. We need to, first of all, make sure that the flushing and the testing continues as quickly as possible so people can get back to their homes and businesses can open. They've been in this situation since November, December, and it's been a long spell for them. It's pretty tough living, you know, out of a hotel room or to just use bottled water. And having toured the facility, of course, you know, it's very clear that defueling this facility safely is also a must-do, and that's going to require hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm going to be very focused along with the rest of the delegation to get the money that we're going to need to defuel that facility. It's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars. The $100 million that was provided in the, what we call the CR, the continuing resolution to keep government running just before I came home, is not going to be enough to defuel the facility properly or safely. And the third area of focus for me regarding Red Hill is to put language into the National Defense Authorization Act through my committee on armed services to provide or to require alternatives to relying on Red Hill for the fueling needs of our military in Hawaii. That is also going to take hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. My goal is to move everybody, and that's a lot of entities, toward basically a closing of Red Hill so that we can protect the water of the people of Oahu. Can you clarify something? Because I know earlier on of the delegation back in December, Mm -hmm. you folks came Mm -hmm. out and were asking the governor to directly communicate with President Biden and declare an emergency. And then members of the delegation went their separate ways. Can you talk about that? Catherine, I don't think we're going down separate ways. I think that the ultimate goal is for all of us is to ensure that we have clean water for drinking and for our businesses. So we're very clear on that. And that we're also very united on the need to defuel safely. We are still waiting for the defueling plan that the contractor needs to provide. I'm hopeful by the, I don't know, about it within two or two, uh, within this month or next. And so we're very clear on that. And we're very clear on the need for um, alternatives to uh, meet the fueling needs. So that's going to take a number of steps. We need the Department of Defense to be on board. We need a lot of entities, including, I would say, the support of the President of the United States, who I have also brought this to his attention. So you've talked directly with the White House, with President Biden? Yes. I have given a note to the president when I saw him a couple of weeks ago. And I said, Mr. President, regarding Red Hill, I need your support. And here's the kind of support. Mainly it was to support whatever the state of Hawaii through its permitting process decides. And I'm pretty sure that the state is not about to give a permit for the continuing operations of Red Hill. But first and foremost, we have to get people back to their homes. We have to get businesses, allow them to open and We need to provide the funding that's going to be necessary to defuel this massive facility and then to push for through the NDAA alternative alternative fueling for the military. That's uh, the Navy, the Air Force, the Army. We are preparing for, I guess, RIMPAC games. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure what the fuel needs are for training exercises like that when you've got other countries involved. I mean, I don't know what briefings you might have been privy to about our capacity to be able to, you know, hold those exercises during this time. That was not an issue that was raised with me and the visits that I had and the tour that I had, but uh, there's a little doubt in my mind that the RIMPAC exercises can continue and they, the military will definitely address the fueling needs for impact. You know, since we had this crisis, we know a lot more now. There have been, you know, reports that uh, the cameras were not functioning at the time of the spill. You know, the fire suppression system, you know, had issues and was down for a time. And we still don't know about this chemical, this BCE chemical And, you know, I think the Department of Health is waiting for some kind of guidance from the CDC since there's nothing on the books about, you know, how we deal with that chemical. What has been most concerning for you? 
that we didn't have the kind of information we needed, and therefore there are various investigations occurring, including one that uh, that I led the delegation on, and that is to ask the Inspector General of the Department of Defense to investigate what happened. But that's not the only investigation that's occurring because the, the EPA is going to be conducting their own investigation of the pipe system. That's their Kuliana under the Clean Water Act. And uh, you have the Navy doing their, I don't know if they've completed their investigation, but there are a number of investigations occurring so that uh, we can determine what happened. And there, there are issues relating to operator mistakes, and um, there's an array of issues that we need to pay attention to. At the same time, we do have other installations throughout the country. There are lessons to be learned from what happened, what's happening at Red Hill. I know that the military is very aware of the need to uh, evaluate what is happening at all their other tank installations. And if we were to site the fuel facility somewhere else, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? This is where the Department of Defense is doing their uh, team uh, analysis of uh, alternatives and and options. And I've definitely pushed Catherine Hicks, who is the uh, Deputy Secretary of the Department of of Defense, who is the uh, point person for the DOD on Red Hill. I really pushed her to providing alternatives to, uh, to uh, besides Red Hill, continuing operations of Red Hill, alternatives to that to meet the fueling needs of our Indo-Pacific area of, of uh, responsibility. So that's huge. I made it very clear to uh, the, the DOD through my discussions with Catherine, as well as uh, to the Secretary of the Navy and others that we all need to be on the page to uh, provide alternative ways to meet the fueling needs besides the continuation of Red Hill, which, by the way, will require a permit from the state of Hawaii. I doubt that the state of Hawaii is going to provide such a permit. So everybody should get on that page to move us toward closure of Red Hill, but it's going to require a lot of uh, moving parts to come together, and that is what I'm focused on. You know, we did see the Secretary of Navy come out here uh, last year. Uh, do you expect anybody else uh, in, uh, uh, you know, higher positions to uh, come out and see for themselves? Well, we had the Secretary of the Navy. We also have the Deputy Director of the DOD. So that's the entire Department of Defense. That's Secretary Hicks. And I talk with her on a regular basis. And in a few weeks, I will have the chairman of the uh uh, defense Committee, SASC, to come to to Red Hill and uh, to visit some other uh, really important facilities in Hawaii. We did have uh, an incident yesterday uh, over on Kauai at the um, uh, yeah. missile base. Uh, you know, very mm-hmm. unfortunate. You know, incident. Uh, you know, we're we're still learning yeah. about that accident. Mm-hmm. I joined the entire state of Hawaii in extending my condolences to the families of the the four who lost their lives. And uh, I did talk with Captain Young, who is the commander of PMRF, to offer my condolences and whatever assistance I can provide during this really tragic period. Uh, At the same time, I know that NTSB, the uh, FAA and others are here to investigate what happened. Uh, and so uh, I will stay in touch with Captain Young uh, during this process. At the same time, yes, uh, leases are coming up for uh, for Pahakaloa and others, and that is why it is really important for the military to uh, uh, to respond in the way that it should regarding Red Hill. And uh, we know that the Navy's responses were uh, uh, did not. Uh, uh, how shall I put it? it? It was not what it should have been to reassure the people of Hawaii that there was going to be a, a, a commitment toward clean water for our people, that that is uh, the uppermost goal for all of us. Uh, since then, the, the Secretary of the Department of Defense and others have reiterated that that's their goal. That is why I would like all of these parties and entities to come together and come up with an alternative way to meet the fueling needs of um, Indo-PACOM. So that's massive. All of this is going to take hundreds of millions of dollars 
it's going to require um, us to really work together with everyone to get to that point. But that's uh, what I'm moving toward, moving everybody toward. What are your thoughts just on our relationship with the military at this point? I know it is a large employer. Uh, we rely on uh, on the military, you know, for our uh, defense. Yes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, to see what's happened with our water is very yes. troublesome. Very much so. And that is why uh, there needs to be, and I think there certainly is at this point, recognition that how the, the military, uh, specifically the Navy, but, you know, it goes beyond the Navy at this point. It's the entire Department of Defense to um, to really come up with uh, with alternatives to Red Hill to be on the same page. And that is why, as I was talking with the Secretary of the Navy when the Red Hill first, uh, I mean, really uh, came to the fore with uh, the, the water incident. I mean, this has been going on since 2014 when we entered the agreement, but uh, people smelling fuel in their water, that happened in November and this crisis. So um, as I talked with the Secretary of the Navy, I also made a point to talk with the Secretary of Defense, and I said to him that this situation goes, you know, has to, go, has to reach his level, and it certainly has reach his level, and also the President of the United States. And, and it all has to do with, uh, the, as you say, Catherine, the relationship that the military has uh, with our community. So they need to show through actions that they are committed, first of all, to make sure that uh, they're not uh, polluting the water, but that they're going to be good neighbors, not just in this incident, but in all the other uh, installations that we have in Hawaii. Yes, we are very much a part of the national security of our country. We understand that. At the same time, we need to be, everyone needs to be stewards of our environment. That was Senator Maisie Hirono talking to us this morning following her visit to the Red Hill Underground Bulk Fuel Storage Facility. Sex trafficking, that's the subject of today's reality chat. Honolulu Civil Beach, Chad Blair, joins us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story today uh, by uh, Jacob Genios. Yes, Jacob is covering a lot of law enforcement issues. And this story, our lead story today, kind of caught me by surprise on what it revealed. Because Jacob took a long time to look at uh, lots of documents. And bottom line, over the last few years, state agencies across the state of Hawaii have been receiving reports of, of sex trafficking incidents. And yet, and this is what's so shocking, during that time, prosecutors have failed to convict a single person uh, for this crime. And we point to 2016, 2016, that's when the legislature actually passed a bill, became law that really formally outlawed this practice, and yet not a single conviction, despite all these reports of cases from very reputable sources, including the state attorney general's office. Yeah, I mean, you know, we often hear about the victims, uh, you know, mm. the women and girls who are involved in the the, the, uh, the sex trafficking. Uh, but, yeah, you don't hear so much about, I guess we'd call them the pimps, or the folks that are uh, organizing this. Right, and I should emphasize this. A lot of this involves the, the sexual exploitation of, of children. I mean, that's really an critical part about this. But you mentioned uh, the perpetrators, if you will, the, the traffickers, the people that are responsible for this. Part of the problem, according to Jacob's research and the folks that he talked to, is that the victims themselves, they're very reluctant, many of them, to come forward and face their accusers, their abusers in court. So that's a that's one big factor for the lack of convictions. Another is that uh, there's a sort of a challenge to get the uh, various offices to come together and work together, if you will, out of their silos. And so one positive outcome that seems to have developed because of this task force that we set up, it's funded by the federal government that's set up here in Honolulu. And what that's done is it's tried to get these, these organizations, the prosecutor's offices, the Hawaii AG, the US AG, US attorney, Honolulu Police Department and get them to work together to coordinate their response because that's another thing that came out as to why or at least a possible rationale for why things aren't getting leading to conviction because people aren't coordinating together. You know, uh, one uh, statistic that kind of made my eyes pop was the uh, 
the number of individuals that the Susanna Wesley Community Center reported um, uh, treating. Yeah, and these are, I mean, these are, these are not insignificant figures, and it depends on which study that you point to. But Susanna Wesley, of course, as an organization here in Honolulu, tracking these numbers. You know, I should mention, here's another thing that, that Jacob found out in his research that's inhibiting the ability of prosecutors to, to really convict these folks. And that is that a lot of this is online. And, and because of that, a lot of this activity is veiled. Uh, many of the people involved have anonymity. And if you don't know who's doing this, if you don't know who the, the identity is of these traffickers, then how can you go about uh, prosecuting them? So that's another thing that came out uh, of the stories. But the numbers are, are, are in the hundreds, and they are significant, and they are from not only from uh, offices like the Attorney General, but also independent organizations. You mentioned Susanna Wesley, uh, all coming together. They're all on the same page, saying, "Look, this is happening. How do you then? How do you then fix this problem?" And then, what are we doing legislatively? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. It, 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 I swear, there's always something to do with sex trafficking mm-hmm. at the legislature. Every session, I, I cover the session all the time, so we'll be makes that a focus. There is one bill. Uh, that's proposing, I think, a total of $750,000. That's a lot of money that would set up a unit in the AG's office to to really help convict these traffickers. So that that's promising. The bill was alive last I checked. Uh, there's also bills to actually train educators, teachers, administrators in our schools, because, as I mentioned, a lot of this involves kids. And to train the educators and the administrators to be aware of sex trafficking responses and prevention to try and catch this before it's happening, to try and recognize when it is happening to these very students. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to track to see uh, you know, where that goes this session. But thanks so much, Chad. You're welcome, Catherine. Thank you. That was politics and opinion editor Chad Blair. Visit civilbeat.org to check out Jacob's story. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org. I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we catch up with Movers and Shakas, which just completed their second cohort. We'll hear how the program evolved, get an inside view from one of the participants, and see where movers and shakas are going in 2022. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the exhibit Treasures of Devotion, Human Connection in Secular and Sacred Art, featuring works from the museum's permanent collection. HonoluluMuseum.org. Good news this week for the five teachers and two educational assistants on Lanai who are facing eviction from state housing. Their rental agreements have been extended for another two years. The state uh, the state sent eviction letters at, uh, at the end of January because the educators had exceeded the Department of Education's five-year cap on the state-provided housing. That cap is usually waived for teachers on Lanai because of limited housing there. But are the two-year extensions enough to alleviate future eviction fears? Lisa Galloway is a teacher at Lanai High School and chairs a committee that brings teacher concerns to administrators. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with her to find out what else needs to be done. Paloma Lanai is the company over here in Lanai. They manage all of Larry Ellison's assets. And so they're just breaking ground on 130 new homes. But those houses, I think they hope, will be done in two years. And 10 of those houses will be set aside for teachers to rent. I think that's the DOE's response is just wait for the company. And in the meantime, we'll do what former principals have always done, which is just not have this notification take effect. 
So the current situation, the the teachers that were on schedule to be evicted, they'll be okay for the near future. Will, but, you know, in, in some ways that the damage is done, they and the rest of the community felt sucker punched is the way they put it. Yeah. Because for years, for more than 20 years, former principals have quietly dealt with this. And I think the teachers didn't even, I mean, they knew when they first signed up, there was supposed to be a five-year limit. But it hasn't taken place. And there's good cause for that, because once you evict somebody on this island, whether you're the DOE or a company or whatever, you fire them. There's nowhere to live. I know that housing for people in the education system is very limited all across Mm -hmm. our state, but I imagine that it's even more so for teachers on the night. There's just limited space there. I'm sure there's a financial component, too. What what is the situation like? You know, I've been here 13 years with my husband. And when we came, we were lucky. We got into company housing designated for teachers and it was affordable. It was right after the recession. And after a couple of years, that allowed us to save money that we couldn't do on Oahu and then buy a house, which was at a low price. There was vacancies and it was a low interest rate. And so we, we caught the wave and and everybody after us did not. So now and then I've seen so many teachers who come here, they even like Tanai, even though we're a hard to fill school, they like this tiny, quiet little place. And one teacher I remember said she she made more money doing three part-time jobs in Los Angeles and she couldn't stay. She left the state after only a year, I think. So that's very, very typical. And now it's an absolute crisis. And of course, on top of that, people have sticker shock when they move from the mainland to Hawaii in terms of what's the price of groceries and gas. Well, the same thing happens when you move from another island to Lanai, that prices are off the charts. Yeah. What what is the cost of a gallon of gas there right now? (laughs) It's only one gas station. So honestly, I don't know. But I do know that that our community will just put up with so much. You know, I think it's around six bucks a gallon. It's crazy. But um, but they did just raise it a bit too high. And so just like with the teacher eviction, suddenly everybody was so offended. And thank goodness for social media. It's so rapid to let everybody know what's going on. And so they protested and they brought the price down a little. But I think most of the time I've lived here, it's been the highest price of gas in the country. When it comes to teacher housing there, is there an opportunity for the state to acquire property to be able to house teachers or is every available piece of land for housing owned by Larry Ellison? Last time I heard, about half of us are private owners of homes. So the other half of the homes, and since, you know, Ellison bought in 2012, and and they have bought every desirable house at an appropriate price going since then. And so that number of, of private homeowners is diminishing, and every other piece of land is owned by him. There has been for 30 years on the books a plan to have housing available for sale at both affordable and market value from Maui County. And there is an area of the town that's designated for that. And the county has always said they've always said they can't afford the infrastructure to put the subdivision in. And so what Paloma Lanai has done is their housing project. They've actually put all the connections up against the street. That would be, you know, where these two neighborhoods would connect. And still, you know, I think there's a real problem with our policymakers. I sometimes wonder if they must be second homeowners and they like the prices as high as they are, because yeah. it's not just teachers, is it? It's it's the police and it's the nurses. You everybody, you can't find people to live here because they can't afford to, even if they want to. And then people who are born and raised here are being chased out, which is catastrophic for the culture. We're seeing similar things all across the state. And it seems like however Lanai goes, the state will go. It seems like you guys are a kind of a microcosm of what yeah, could happen. Yeah, canary in the coal mine. Yeah. yeah. Exactly yeah. So right. what do Lanai teachers or, or, or teachers in general feel like the solution is? Is there something that lawmakers can do? Is there something that the Board of Education or, or the Department of Education can do yeah, to, I, to help out the situation there on Lanai? Yeah, we've we've been trying the gentle way. The union is certainly looking for ways that teachers here and across the state can somehow get into their own homes eventually and do things the way it used to happen. But honestly, my own feeling of it is that, you know, this time we were headed off at the pass from making a, a very public protest from literally taking to the street. 
Linda Coit helped us, and it was all taken care of by the people who are directly involved. But I almost regret that because when I hear from friends that they think they can't afford Lanai, so they want to move to Maui, well, a, a Maui studio with no kitchen rents for 2000 a month. Yeah. So why aren't people in Maui taking to the streets or every island where this is happening and protesting and saying, you can't kick us out of our homes where we've been here for years, throw up a layer of paint and call that remodeling and then turn around and rent it to somebody new, particularly from the mainland. We're going to pay four times as much. It's, it's just rampant greed and there's a failure to have a policy in place. Yeah, I know when I've talked to affordable housing advocates on Maui, they are saying that the largest section of the state's population that are in need of, of affordable housing are on Maui just because of rental prices and, and, the, and the sale prices that are continuing to go up on Maui. And so it, it must be countywide as well, the, the need for policymakers to step in and find another way to help make housing affordable for and that does include the, the, the Board of Ed, because this is a Board of Ed policy that had these teachers evicted. And clearly works in in the opposite direction of what you'd want to see happen. You were a hard to staff school. You've got people who have committed to being here at least five years. That's why they're in those houses getting evicted or not now getting evicted, but almost. And so these are the ones you want to keep. And so they need to review all of this and say, what's actually working to help our teachers so they can be a stable force to educate our children? And so that's what the public can do as well as you, you know, you, you, you vote, you talk to your politicians and you, you write the Board of Education and, and you protest. All of those things actually help. It sounds like it's going to take a lot of concerted effort from the public to mm-hmm. help change the way things are. Yeah. And it's, you know, there is an ethic statewide as as far as I've seen it. I've been here more than 20 years and, you know, people don't like to make trouble. Right. And so as soon as things are kind of okay, then they back off. But, you know, part of this is also the problem of of teacher pay and the, the, you know, HSTA is working very hard on that. And there's some bills in the ledge right now that are moving forward because our pay has essentially been frozen for decades. And we're not the only ones. Again, you've got your hotel workers and everybody else. They're being denied that middle class existence that we all hope for when we play by the rules. We do all the right things. We go to college and we behave. <laughs> and these days it's not working in anybody's favor. And, and so I, I always look at it. It's like part of the problem is national, even international in terms of housing and, and pay and the middle class. And, and part of it's the state. And then part of it's just Lanai. And uh, if it's just Lanai, we have to own that and we have to keep asking, keep demanding for the changes we need to see so that life is livable here. That was Lisa Galloway, a teacher at Lanai High School, talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about how to ensure that there is affordable housing for teachers across Maui County. You know, February happens to be Children's Dental Health Month. And Dr. Gavin Uchida is a pediatric dentist. He also serves as administrator for Hawaii Dental Service. And there's a campaign underway to get more families educated about tooth sealants and how they can help cavity-prone keiki. It's hard to understand why so few parents take advantage of the preventive treatment when it is often covered by insurance. Here's Dr. Uchida. The sealants have been around since the 60s when they were first developed as a tool to help prevent cavities. It's one tool out of many, but it's one that's underused, not only in Hawaii, but across the United States, but especially here in Hawaii, it's underused. Statewide, only about 15% of kids age 6 through 8 are receiving sealants now. And it's not the case that sealants are limited to kids of that age, but that's the number one target for sealant. Only 15%, and that's true for both private insurance and for Medicaid populations. That just seems so shocking, you know, because if it's something that your insurance already covers, why not try it? That's a great point. And I think perhaps there are so many things in our life that distract us from doing what it is that we could do to improve our health that I think this is just one thing that falls in the cracks and and we kind of lose sight of it. It would be nice if 
patients and members of the public and families bring up sealants to the attention of their dentist, inquire if sealants are going to be a good thing, and probe the dentist to maybe talking about whether or not it's something that should be considered. Sometimes the dentist needs to recommend it, but sometimes that urge and that nudge should come from the families. Well, you know, we're talking kids as young as, as, what, five years old. And the idea is that, what, you put the sealant on to protect the first permanent teeth that come in. Typically, that's how sealants are used. Although I think it's important to bring up that people of any age can receive sealants, and that could be someone who is younger than age six. It could also be an adult. Adults can benefit from sealants as well, and that piece of the conversation is often lost. Like I said earlier, kids age six, seven, and eight are primarily the main targets for applying sealants, and for them, it's application of sealants to the first permanent molars, which is the number one use of sealants. But in theory, sealants can also be applied to baby teeth, baby molars before age six, and they can be applied to permanent molars and permanent bicuspids for people of any age. And it doesn't hurt, right? It's just something that it's applied and it dries on there and seals the tooth. Yes, it's so easy to do. It's pain-free. It works. It helps reduce cavities, and statistics show that. It's often, but not always, an insurance benefit. It is a benefit for children covered under the state's welfare system, Quest. And most private insurance plans cover it at 100%. But you're right. It's easy, it's pain-free, and it works. So it's it's one more tool that should be considered in preventing cavities. Well, this happens to be what uh, Pediatric Dentistry Month, and I've seen the ads on TV running, really cute ads, you know, with the baby seal. But oh, thank you. Yes. What else are we doing to get the word out? So we have new leadership at Hawaii Dental Service, and this is one of our initiatives that we're really focusing on because the benefit of sealants in preventing cavities and reducing the financial costs that members of the public need to pay to repair cavities, but also reducing the costs incurred by the insurance companies. This is a win-win. So we're promoting sealants for their win-win-win situation on the radio. We're getting word out to providers to maybe, hey, you know, reconsider our sealants going to be a good part of a treatment plan for your patients. And we're asking families to also bring it up to the attention of their providers. But another sort of interesting and wonderful thing that's occurring is that we're actually taking steps to get sealants delivered to kids in schools. And this is something that is new to the state of Hawaii. It's occurring through the University of Hawaii, uh, Hawaii Keiki program under the supervision of Dr. Deborah Mateus and partnership with Hawaii Dental Service. We're actually relaunching a sealant program where we're going to schools in Title I regions statewide to try to increase exposure of these high-risk kids to uh, the benefits of dental sealant. Where are we doing this? Are we doing this here just on Oahu or on neighbor islands? It it was launched a few years ago just prior to COVID-19, so there have been some delays and some stalls because of the pandemic. The program has been running successfully on Windward Oahu, and we're going to be going to central Oahu very soon. It has also expanded to Maui, where we're seeing kids in Title I schools on Maui. Soon we're going to be launching in Kauai, and our intention is to also make it to Big Island and and cover kids all over the state. That's on the horizon, but the program right now and through the past two years has successfully operated on Oahu and on Maui. And so is it just a matter of then these folks going to the schools and then what the parents get a flyer, you know? That, oh, that... thank you. Yeah, thank you for asking. So if it's the case that anybody listening to this program is, is the um, parent or the guardian of a child and you receive a permission form to uh, allow or not allow this child to participate in sealants at schools, please fill out that permission form, read it over, and I encourage you to check yes. It's a free program. There are no costs involved to anybody. It's fully funded through Hawaii Dental Service and the University of Hawaii. If it's the case that you receive this permission form, fill it out and return it. It's really important. Not only would allow sealants to be delivered to your child, but it'll allow for screening of other oral diseases. Everything is pain-free and it's cost-free. So if there are parents out there with a keiki, 
look out for that if if that comes to your school and if you're a kapuna uh, that uh, the grandchildren just to to make sure that they get that care because it can go a long way in reducing the trauma sometimes of going to the dentist. Oh, certainly, yes. And the wonderful thing about sealants, and, and forgive me, I can talk about sealants and oral health all day long. I get really excited about it. But the wonderful thing about sealants is that it is a positive experience for children and for adults. It's an easy thing to do, and it works. So it's an opportunity for somebody to have a happy dental experience, and it can turn a child who might have a little bit of anxiety and give them this positive experience. It's one more thing that can help make kids comfortable going to the dentist and going to all healthcare providers. So um, yes, it's a a slam dunk home run type of experience. Well, I confess, I love my candy and I had plenty cavities. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Catherine, what you might wanna do is you might wanna ask your own dentist your adult dentist, hey, I'm, I'm looking forward to enjoying some of my uh, Valentine's Day candy. What can you do for me? And maybe that dentist will recommend sealants as a way to prevent some of those ill effects of those sweet things. Well, I wish I knew about it when, when I was younger or, <laughs> or was around uh, so that my experience with dentists uh, weren't so traumatic. Dentistry has come a long way, and a lot of things that actually legitimately may have been painful or scary in generations past there are some new developments, and things actually make a lot more friendly, a lot more comfortable, a lot less painful now. I experienced the same thing myself. I, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you were scared of dentists, too, but you became one. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> All right. Um, gosh, and so uh, when did you just relaunch the, uh, the dental sealant school thing? Um, oh, so the dental sealant program has, has been around for a couple of years. It stuttered a bit with the COVID pandemic, but we're looking like the program is going to go strong for this year and for the next school year. Yeah, stay tuned for that. And like I said, anybody who's a guardian of a second or a third grader, especially in a Title I program, if, mm-hmm. if you see that permission form come through, pay attention to it. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks, and, Catherine. Uh, I love talking about teeth. I hope the public uh, all want to go and call their dentist now and schedule an appointment. That was pediatric dentist and HDS administrator Gavin Uchida talking about dental sealants and efforts to educate families with young children about how the treatments can help improve dental health. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health Systems, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org. Russian hackers threaten to expose sensitive police files unless the police pay them $4 million in ransom. And the police department offered, I think, 100000 This is unacceptable. Follow our website at midnight. And just like that, the hackers released decades of police misconduct files on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And we've got a strange and special call for you on this week's Mono Minute, thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology at University of Hawaii. At Hilo, Professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the Wedgetail Shearwater. Wa'ukani, or wedge-tailed shearwaters, are one of the most abundant seabirds in Hawaii. They have a wingspan of about a meter, hook-shaped bills that help them catch their prey, and, as their English name describes, wedge-shaped tails. Both males and females can either be light or dark brown. The name Uwa'ukani means calling or moaning petrel, and you can often hear these calls if you're lucky enough to live near a colony during their spring and summer breeding season. Uwa'ukani are one of the 
aku birds that fisher people often use to find where the larger predatory fish like ahi and aku are in the ocean. Unlike most other seabirds, uaukani can often forage underwater by using their wings to propel themselves to depths of up to 200 feet in search of small fish and squid. The population size in Hawaii is estimated to be close to 300,000 birds, but most of them live either in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands or on offshore islets around the main Hawaiian Islands, such as Manana and Mokumanu. Like their cousins, the Uau, or Hawaiian petrel, Uaukane lay just a single egg in burrows that they dig themselves in the dirt or sand. The parents take turn incubating the eggs for about two months in alternating shifts that last one to two weeks. Unlike their petrel cousins, though, that nest high up in the mountains, Uaukani nest near the ocean. These ground nesting habits make them easy prey for dogs, cats, and mongooses. So nowadays, most Uaukani on the main Hawaiian islands nest in protected areas such as Kaena Point and Black Point on Oahu and Kilauea Point on Kauai. We can help protect our Uaukani by making sure that dogs and cats stay out of the breeding colonies and also by reducing bright outdoor lights that attract the juveniles when they leave the nest around the beginning of the makahiki season in late fall. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Pumanamana. The Hawaiian word means to branch out, and that is the kuleana, or the responsibility, that the Kealakai Center for Pacific Strings is taking on. We talked to Noah Ha'alilio Solomon, president of the center, last week. He had just come from the Hawaii State Archives to see the 10,000-piece collection donated by the late Michael Scott of Canada. The Hawaiian language educator says he was just overwhelmed with it all. The music spans more than 100 years and can trace the evolution of Hawaiian music and its influence across the globe. The task ahead is to begin sorting out the boxes of music that will serve as a basis for a heritage resource. The possibilities for a music curriculum seems limitless. So where do you start? My role is to oversee basically the data entry but to oversee it, I had to sort of define the data fields themselves. What do we want to know about each song that we're choosing to include in this first phase of the project? So we basically hand-selected 250 of those mele based on three criteria. They have to be recorded and written in Hawaiian language. They have to be recorded in Hawaii. And they have to be recorded before 1928, we're saying which kind of whittles down the whole collection into a considerably smaller piece. And with this smaller piece, what I want to know, which is what I'm choosing to define as the data entry fields, beyond things like the name of the song, the name of the composer, the name of the band, and the members of the band, are also the lyrics as they were intended by the composer, kauna, or deeper meanings, or implications, or there's innuendo, if there's satire, if there are what kinds of material culture is alluded to in these lyrics. So that's my role, is overseeing the inclusion of that information as well. So this is really adding a very deep dimension to just mm-hmm. having a collection. Right. Hawaiian music is pretty accessible, it's generally, especially with the internet. It can be at everybody's fingertips, but most websites or collections or platforms where you can listen or be exposed to Hawaiian music, it's maybe just a recording and you don't know the lyrics, or maybe the lyrics are not a recording, or maybe the lyrics are a recording, but not necessarily an accurate explanation or translation. So we're trying to synthesize all of the resources that are sort of out there in piecemeal and really bring a one-stop shop sort of resource that we're completely envisioning as a public heritage resource. And of course, we have sort of target audiences in mind. Kumuhula, you know, when Mary Monarch rolls around every year, 
several Komohula will start. They really, I'm hoping, I would say all of them, take their song selection and their process to select the appropriate mele that their students are going to dance. They take that very seriously. Lots of research goes into it. The Pumanamana project, one aim for it is to have that type of research very deeply facilitated. Kumuhula are just one a part of the target audience, but really this is a public heritage resource open to the people of Hawaii. And in the precise way that Hawaiian music has really touched so many people across the world in so many different decades, for many decades that have already passed and for hopefully many decades to come, this is for them as well. Well, this month happens to be, I think, Hawaiian Language Month. So yep. it just seems fitting that as you start to, you know, look at this criteria and and really focus in on this group of mele, I guess it just has more meaning. Yeah. February is a great time to start a project like this because we are focusing so much on the word, the lyric, Olelo Hawaii itself, which is sort of a feature that's going to distinguish the Pumanamana project. We're really paying close attention to the lyricism, as well as the instrumentation and musicality and lithiology and history. But the proper word for something like this is logogenic, meaning the word and the meaning drives the music versus other types, other styles of music. Maybe the melody or the instrument drives the the music itself. So for Mele Hawaii, it's the word that's, that's the seed. Well, what does pumanamana mean? Pumanamana I chose as a word because it literally means a stalk that has many branches. And the more I've worked at, I've been a DJ at KTUH with the Hawaiian language show and Hawaiian music with sort of the, my rule of thumb is the older the better. And my time at UH, particularly at KTUH, has really just, I've seen how many renditions, how many iterations of Aloha Oi there are, or how many renditions of um, Moani Ke'ala there are. So Pumanamana was a name that we chose because of how many different iterations one song that was popular in the 1890s has become and has endured throughout the 20 and 21st centuries. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this will encompass not just the collection that we got from Canada, but also the collection that might be at KTUH? Hopefully, that's the, that's the goal, is to eventually fold in other collections. This doesn't mean that any collection has to switch ownership, switch hands. The good thing about this is it can be loaned for digitization and indexicalization, and then it goes back to the original hands. So really, so, it's, um, it's just a preservation and... Archiving, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, digitization, documentation, preservation, and archiving. What were you struck by as you were going through the collection today? Really struck by the multimedia nature of this collection that Public Archives has just acquired. There's photographs, there are floppy disks of more photographs, there are interviews on reel to reel, there are every type of media, every type of shellac, vinyl, 33, 78s, 45s. So just the diversity of media is impressive, but also like how many new bands and names that I've never even heard of recording very familiar songs. I just, it's mind-blowing. You have a lot of work to do then. (laughs) We do. Phase one is a proof of concept. We really want to make this 250 melee block just sparkle and shine and and be a model for what what can eventually catalog the rest of the collection, which is going to take maybe at least five years and Lots of funding and lots of manual labor and data entry and a lot of community support. We really hope, I I hope the community receives this, this heritage resource warmly. I think this kind of project opens up a lot of possibilities for multidisciplinary curriculum materials to be developed. In my own classrooms at UH where I teach Olelo Hawaii and also Te Reo Titi, which is Tahitian language, transcription of older mele is is an educational lesson but it's also something that the students i find really enjoy listening to a song from the 1940s and trying to sort of understand between the cracks and the pops of the of the audio it's a it's a neat sonic 
glimpse back into time and it's just a fun use of class time. You know, I almost did a degree. I almost applied for a master's. I wanted to do a master's in ethnomusicology because I was struck. I have been struck and I'm still struck by the impact that the Hawaiian Renaissance in the 1970s had and continues to have on Hawaiian music in, in general. And I think this goes back to the word I used earlier, logogenic. If I were to sort of characterize the evolution of Hawaiian music, particularly around that time, I think previously, prior to the Renaissance, a lot of focus was on the word. And then after, uh, during and after, I, I suppose, the focus shifted to the instrument. And that really kind of is a philosophy that guides my um, approach to a new collection like this or my approach to a, a, a funded grant project or a, my approach to a Pumanamana project is that uh, focus on not forgetting that the word is uh, the seed, which is kind of a paradigm shift. I don't think everybody's as comfortable with that. I don't think everybody accepts that as comfortably as, as I might like because a big subgenre of Hawaiian music is just instrumental. Slack key is a huge industry. Steel guitar with no singing is a huge industry. It's a huge part of, of Hawaiian music itself. I guess my philosophy challenges some of those popular notions. That was Noah Ha'alilio Solomon, president of the Kialakai Center for Pacific Strings. It has just received a grant from the Hawaii Tourism Authority to help with the Pumanamana Project, which will begin organizing a large collection of Hawaiian music that was recently donated to the Hawaii State Archives. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we learn about a disabilities conference that is just around the corner. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, uh, find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.